Let's hear the word of God as we turn to Paul's first letter to Timothy, one of the last of his writings written from his final imprisonment. 1 Timothy 4, reading from the first verse. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, and the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Then we'll end our reading at close of First Timothy chapter 4, and we pray for the blessing of the Lord on his own precious word. Greek culture, the world in which the New Testament writers uh, grew up and in which they lived and conducted their ministry, Greek culture in ancient times put tremendous emphasis on physical perfection. You think of the Greek art of the day, the depictions of the human body, particularly in sculpture, and it is in terms of ideal beauty. You see the figures that the Greek artists produced and you wouldn't meet them walking down the street. They are physically perfect specimens. That was the goal, of course, of the artists, to present 
the human physical characteristics in their perfection, in their beauty. Uh, and that was very highly regarded uh, in Greek culture. Uh, curiously, that also sat alongside the attitude of some of the philosophers that uh, argued that the material world and even the material body was uh, of no value compared uh, to the spiritual, to the soul. Uh, we'll come back to that apparent contradiction uh, later on. The great emphasis on beauty, on the pursuit of perfection. But of course, that's characteristic not just of a culture 2,000 years ago. You know very well, of course, in our own culture, uh, tremendous emphasis still uh, on physical perfection, perhaps coupled with uh, athletic prowess. And great pressure is put, especially on young people, uh, especially on young girls, to pursue certain ideals of beauty, of perfection. And, of course, much of that's fueled by the online world and social media. That puts great burdens on younger people particularly. Some of us who are older have given up the idea of pursuing physical perfection. We realized some time ago that we probably weren't going to get there, and now we're quite sure we won't. But it's no joke for younger people. The pressures that are put on to pursue perfection. And if they don't meet that standard, whatever it is, and whoever dreams up the standard, then... Of course, there are great problems created, mental health and other problems of that nature. What priority should Christians have? We can see the dangers of this emphasis on the physical, but what should our priorities be as the people of God? Paul, as he wrote 1 Timothy, we said he was in prison, his final imprisonment. One of his last letters before he laid down his life as a martyr for Christ. As Paul's writing, he's writing to a relatively young pastor, to Timothy, uh, in a situation of challenge uh, in Ephesus, a godless city, all the, uh, all the currents of, of Greek culture flowing through it. Writing to Timothy, the apostle Paul, among other things, is setting out for God's servant what the priorities ought to be, not only for uh, the, the servants of God in gospel ministry, but for all of God's people. I want to turn our thoughts to two verses we found uh, and read earlier in 1 Timothy 4. We're looking particularly at verses 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Thinking of 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, train yourself for godliness. As we look at the Apostle's Spirit-inspired advice for Pastor Timothy, we want to see, first of all, the foolishness to avoid. The foolishness to avoid. Paul's concern for Timothy, 
is that he should become a, a good a minister of Jesus Christ, a good servant of Jesus Christ, as he puts it in verse 6. He is in prison. He's not wrapped up in himself and his own uh, sufferings for Jesus' sake, as he might well have been. His focus is on others, and particularly on his spiritual son, uh, on Timothy, a good servant of Jesus Christ. And one element in that project of becoming a good servant of Jesus Christ is to avoid certain things. And Paul puts it quite bluntly. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with them. What does Paul have in mind with this warning? What exactly uh, is he counseling Timothy to avoid? Our first thoughts might be, well, could it be the, uh, the, the kinds of false teaching in the opening five uh, verses? Very much ascetic ideals uh, that were current, certainly, in uh, the city of Ephesus. The idea that, as we said for some philosophers, the body was unimportant. Indeed, some spoke of the body as a tomb to be escaped from, only the spiritual matter. And here were those uh, extolling uh, the benefits of keeping down the body, holding it in check. Uh, they were forbidding people to marry, for example, verse 3. Uh, they were teaching that certain foods should be avoided. Uh, and all of these were supposedly of spiritual benefit uh, to those who followed this pathway. Mortifying the body was seen as a virtue. And that certainly was a problem in the church in Ephesus. But I think uh, Paul has in mind in his warning to Timothy something uh, wider than that. No doubt this was included, but there, there's more. It's surely very significant uh, that right at the very beginning of the letter, Paul has scarcely uh, begun the letter, for he is warning uh, Timothy about the dangers of false teachers uh, that he will have to encounter, that he will have to deal with here uh, in Ephesus. Uh, right back in chapter 1 uh, and verse uh, 3, uh, he's charging uh, Timothy, you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, same word, and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship. And so I think Paul has in mind a wide spread of false teaching. Clearly, these different trends were evident in Ephesus, and uh, Timothy's ministry was going to have to uh, answer them and uh, deal with the false teachers who were infiltrating the church. Paul's warning Timothy he is to avoid all forms of false teaching, whether they come as they ascetic teaching that despised the body, our fascination with myths and genealogies. It's not suggesting researching your family tree is dangerous, but it certainly can be addictive, it seems, for some people. But spiritual significance was seen in some of these genealogies. And Paul is warning Timothy, keep away from them. They are, he says, irreverent. Translate it in different ways. Godless, profane, 
spiritually damaging myths and uh, false uh, teaching of every kind. Indeed, he calls them old wives' tales. Uh, indeed, the kind of thing that foolish, spiritually gullible people might imbibe and believe and act upon and it will do them tremendous spiritual damage. Have nothing to do with them. That very strong, unequivocal condemnation. He is not to toy with them. He is not to develop even a limited interest in them. Have nothing to do with them. Paul understands, of course, they are profoundly spiritually damaging. And so even a pastor like Timothy must be warned, stay away from false doctrine in every form. And surely he's speaking to us also. Don't we here have a reminder that the path to spiritual health and fruitful service for all Christians, not just pastors, but for all Christians, that path studiously avoids any kind of false teaching. This is not a trivial matter. This is not a, a, in any sense a secondary issue. If we would be healthy, if we would render fruitful service to the Lord, what we need is what Paul describes here in verse 6. He speaks of the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. We need a healthy diet. It's obvious in a physical sense. If we do not have a healthy diet, then it will damage us. But spiritually speaking, how much more do we need a healthy diet that will nourish us, that will build us up in the faith, far from the false teaching that will distract, that will damage, that will hinder, have nothing to do with it. And that word would come to us all. We must not follow the trend that's so common in Christian circles of a relative indifference to theological issues. You may hear sometimes the expression, well, uh, theology divides but experience unites. That sounds superficial, it sounds attractive perhaps. But we need sound theology in order to understand our experience and to evaluate it and to make sure we are walking a wise and a healthy path. And so every Christian really is a theologian. We're to engage with the Word of God. We're to meditate upon it prayerfully. And we are engaged by that means in the study of theology. We may not take down textbooks. We may not be able to toss to and fro the big names. And there are those who can toss to and fro big names and who spiritually are very weak and very ineffective. But if we engage in the Word of God with the, the, the words of the faith, the good doctrine, it will nourish us. It will enable us to avoid the foolishness that, that Paul speaks about here. Stay away from the silly myths. They will do you nothing but damage. Regard false teaching as what it really is, a spiritual poison. It will do you nothing but harm. A foolishness to avoid. But of course, the negative is never enough. 
And Paul goes on to the positive and he goes on to speak about the training to pursue. The training to pursue. His call is train yourself for godliness. And he sets out a contrast here. He deals, first of all, with bodily training. In verse 8. Bodily training. And he says bodily training is of some value. Now, some of the older translations uh, would make it sound really quite dismissive. Physical training is of little value. And almost set it aside and don't waste your time on it. That's not reflecting what Paul uh, is saying. He does say bodily training has a little value. He's not dismissing it as having no value. Because the scriptures do not devalue the body. We mentioned some of the the philosophers uh, who denigrated the physical, uh, who regarded it as utterly insignificant, indeed even a barrier to spiritual progress. That's not a biblical perspective. That's sometimes infiltrated parts of the church. As if only the spiritual mattered, the body is irrelevant. But no, the scriptures remind us that our bodies, our physical makeup, uh, is God's gift. God is the creator of uh, our, our bodily nature. And so in the scriptures, the body isn't written off as utterly insignificant. It's God's good creation. It's included in salvation. Never forget that the Lord saves our bodies as well as our souls. We'll have bodies throughout eternity. So the body is God's good creation. It should be cared for, but not idolized. And that essentially is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. Bodily exercise does have a little value. And the body is to be looked after. Remember, he told Timothy to take a little wine for stomach's sake. And so the people of God are not to disregard the body entirely. It is the Lord's. It belongs to him. It should be cared for. But what Paul is stressing is that we are to have God-honoring priorities. That the bodily exercise is of a little value, but there is something that is of great value. And so he goes on to speak to Timothy and to us about godliness. Bodily exercise, training, it has a place. But godliness, godliness, uh, the apostle tells us, uh, is of value in every way. And that's all embracing. It is value in every way. A comprehensive view of what godliness really is. It touches every area of life. It's not something that's added on to other aspects of life. We might think of well, we have family life and we have working life and we have our social relationships and our sport perhaps. And godliness is one that's added on as well. No. Godliness is to penetrate every aspect of life, our family, our work, and so forth. Godliness is to shape everything that the Christian is, 
everything that we do. It's the very core of what a Christian is and how we live godliness. Godliness that is impossible apart from a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul uh, speaks of Christ himself as the mystery of godliness. Christ is the mystery of godliness. And so godliness is possible only when we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. Listen to Paul in Romans 6, great chapter about union with Christ. Romans 6, 11. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's seems favorite expression. In union with Christ, we are dead to sin, alive to God. There is the foundation for godliness. A whole life that is being transformed by virtue of our union with the Savior. Godliness ultimately is likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the definition of godliness. If you would be a godly person, you're pursuing likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That is growing in godliness. That is the goal of the work of God's grace in our hearts and lives, transformed into the same image as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is the godliness for which Timothy and we are to train. Likeness to Christ. Train yourself for godliness. Could also be train yourself in godliness. I might think, well, there's little or no distinction. I mean, what point are you trying to make? Well, it's simply this if we train ourselves in godliness, godliness is like the context in which we pursue greater godliness. It's like the, uh, the gymnasium to which we go already by God's grace. There is a a degree of godliness in us because God's grace is never in vain. And from that godliness that is already produced within us, we are seeking to go on to greater godliness and greater likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness is like the, the air we breathe. It's the whole environment in which uh, we are to be living. Indeed, it's the environment in which we we'll thrive as Christians. Train yourself in godliness. Train yourself for godliness. There is to be progress. There is to be growth. Like a newborn that is to grow if it is healthy. So we are to be growing. We are to be growing as long as the Lord leaves us on this earth. From godliness to greater godliness. That's his will for us. That's his purpose. 
That's the environment in which you and I will thrive and be able to serve God for his glory. It is by the power of God that we grow. It's the working of the Spirit within us. And yet we have a responsibility that we cannot escape. Train yourself for godliness. There is action required. Train yourself. It is the, uh, the word that is the root of gymnasium, gymnastics, and so forth. And it implies, doesn't it, effort. Spirit-enabled effort, most certainly, but effort. The brand of teaching that you'll find among some Christians, let go and let God. We're to be passive and let God somehow make us godly people without us exerting ourselves is not at all what Paul is describing. Train yourself. There is action required. There is effort that is necessary. We are not to be passive. If we are, we need not be surprised if we don't grow in godliness. Indeed, uh, if godliness decreases and far from progressing, we regress and become weak and have all kinds of spiritual troubles. Train yourself. Make the effort. Get into the spiritual gymnasium. Now, for some of you, of course, that may be somewhere you love to go, to the gymnasium. Others of us would hurry past if we saw such a place. It's the last place we might be found. But there are to be no exceptions among God's people in getting into the spiritual gymnasium, the place of training, and make the effort. Use the means of grace. Use the equipment that God has provided for us and use it diligently. Think of the means of grace. We have his word. We have prayer. We have the worship of God's people, the sacraments, the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. All the resources are there, but they must be used. If you go into a gymnasium and you look at the equipment and you admire it, and you think, what wonderful uh, equipment there is here. My, if I used that, I would be really fit. But you never do anything. You just look at it. Of course it will be of no benefit to you. It would be ridiculous to expect it. And yet it's more ridiculous to expect that God, having given us the means of grace, doesn't expect us to use it, and use it diligently. We might have the word, but do we immerse ourselves in it? Do we engage with it? Read and study? Meditate? And so for all of the means of grace, they are to be used. The equipment is there. We are to train ourselves. And there's tremendous encouragement, surely, in this. Because God has made the provision we need. If we use it faithfully, we will grow in godliness, we will be spiritually healthy, we will be equipped to serve the Lord. In 2 Peter 1.3, we're reminded that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's all in Christ. It's all provided. If we use it, 
we will grow in godliness. And that should fill us with hope. Perhaps we look at our spiritual lives sometimes and we think, I'm not doing terribly well. I'm struggling. I know it should be better. And that's a humbling thing. But though it humbles us, it should not paralyze us. And we say, well, there's no hope. I just give up. All the resources are provided. The Spirit of God will bless our use of them, but we must train ourselves for godliness and get into the gym and make the effort and use the resources and look to the Lord to bless. Foolishness to avoid. The training to pursue. Are you pursuing that training? Are you using the resources the Lord has given? If you were to weigh up your spiritual life at this point, would there be the areas where you're not training? Where perhaps you are weak and you're struggling? Perhaps even defeated at times by temptation? And surely the root is usually that we're not training ourselves and we're not using the Lord's resources. Are you using them? Do you delight in them? Maybe there are some who approach bodily training with resentment and something they don't want to do, but they grit their teeth and they do it. That's not the spirit in which we are to train ourselves for godliness. Not in a a heavy-spirited, resentful way, but delighting that God's given us all we need. The resources, they're sitting there. If we will use them, if we will train ourselves, and we should be encouraged that all the provision is there, we are called to use it diligently. The foolishness to avoid, the training to pursue, And finally, the life to enjoy. The life to enjoy. Because this is a passage full of encouragement. And the people of God need much encouragement. A significant aspect of gospel ministry is to give the Lord's encouragement to the Lord's people. We all know we struggle. We are challenged by the spiritual war in which God has placed us. And at times, we do feel defeated. We need encouragement. And Paul here offers tremendous encouragement as we train ourselves for godliness, as we walk the path that the Lord sets before us. Because he says of... uh, Training ourselves in godliness, it holds promise. It holds promise. So here's the Lord's promise. And it's the promises of God, of course, that are so encouraging, richly encouraging for Christians. It holds promise. What is God's promise? The promise of God at its heart is life. Life. Not simply biological existence, though that is his gift but spiritual 
covenant life. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul writes about in the very beginning of 2 Timothy. The very first verse. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And training for godliness holds that promise of life. And we can link it to a verse we quoted already today in John 10.10, where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. The life that we were made to live, the life for which we were created, that's the life in its fullness, fulfilling God's purpose for us. And training for godliness holds promise of life. And it is a rich promise, like all the promises of God. First, for the present life. Because a life of godliness in communion with the triune God is, as we've said, life as we were created to live it. And we will never find true joy or satisfaction trying to live in some other way because we are going against, as it were, the the design of God himself. It is a life of godliness for which we were designed. And there is where we will find joy and satisfaction, fulfillment, the things that people around us are seeking everywhere, but in the place where they are to be found. If you go right back to Eden, the first two chapters of Genesis, and you see that man was made for a life of communion, fellowship with God, and the bonds of covenant. And that damaged so severely as it was by the fall, that is restored in Christ. We are again put in a place by God's grace where we can live that life of fellowship with the Lord. We're brought into the covenant of grace. And God gives himself to us and provides for us all the resources that enable us to live lives of godliness. And there is the life that will bring us joy. Joy in the Lord. The world can't give us and can't take away from us. Satisfaction in God because he made us for himself. Interesting, great. Church Father Augustine, as he thought of his own spiritual experience, and he writes in his confessions, the Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And isn't that true? If you're a child of God tonight, can't you say that is the truth? It's in the Lord and in fellowship with the Lord that I find my satisfaction, my joy, my sense of purpose, direction in life. It's restored in Christ. That's the place of blessing. And outside of Christ, what is there? Ecclesiastes, very first chapter, second verse. It's vanity. It's empty. And life lived in any other way is empty. It offers perhaps some temporary satisfactions and pleasures. Yes, we don't deny that. But they can't last. 
they won't last. They're empty. So training for godliness offers promise of life for this present life. But of course, that isn't all. It offers promise for the life to come. For the Christian, we know this is not all there is. And we know that for God's children, truly the best is still to come. If there are joys in the Christian life at present, and we know there are, they're only the beginning. And they're only a little taste of what God has prepared for his people. We are looking to the life to come as we train for godliness. At the death of the body, well, as Paul understood, we will be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Perfect fellowship, free from the presence of sin, free from the possibility of falling, nothing to detract from that fellowship. But there's even more. Even that is not all that God has planned and prepared for us. Because the final stage in the life to come embraces the resurrection of the body. Remember we said, uh, biblical Christianity doesn't despise the body. God saves the body. And we will not be complete until our bodies are raised like Christ's glorious body. We will be changed, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be transformed. We'll have bodies that are suited for life in the new creation that the returning Christ will usher in at that last great day. And we will join with the gathering of the whole church of Jesus Christ, all the redeemed, that multitude, as we're told in Revelation 7, that no man can count, God knows. But it's beyond our little minds. Give up your tiny views of salvation. The Lord is saving a vast multitude. And all will be gathered at the last day. Fellowship with one another, but greater than all of that. We will be with the Lord forever. That's our hope as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4.17. We will be with the Lord. We'll be as like him as it's possible for finite creatures to be. We will be as godly as it is possible for finite creatures to be. Saved sinners, saved by grace, reflecting the likeness of Christ in all its perfection. Isn't it worth training for godliness? Look at where the Lord is taking us. Already there's blessing. Already there's joy in this present life. But the life to come, we're scarcely able to imagine the glories God has prepared. The completion, the fulfillment of godliness, perfect likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. With him, with his people, in covenant bonds for all eternity. 
train yourself for godliness. How could any other path even begin to compare with the path God has assigned his people, with all the resources we need to grow in godliness, to train, to become like our Savior, to glorify him, to serve him, the life to enjoy now and in eternity. Give all the incentive we could possibly need to get into the spiritual gymnasium and to take the equipment God has provided and to train ourselves by the enabling of the Spirit and to grow more like Christ, greater godliness, and already enjoying the blessing and looking forward to the glory to come, to be with the Lord and his people forever and ever. And we will be fulfilled completely and lacking nothing. And all the praise will be to his name. And our hearts will be delighted. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you rejoicing in salvation. We come giving thanks for the provision you have made in Christ in all its fullness and completeness. Lord, enable us, we pray, to avoid the foolishness of the world and its empty pathways. May we see them for what they are. And Father, may we truly Delight in godliness and train. Train ourselves as your Spirit gives us strength, as we use the means of grace you've given us, that we would grow in godliness, in likeness to Christ. And Father, may we know the joy of life in this present world in fellowship with God. And may we look forward with anticipation to life in all its richness and fullness throughout eternity, raised with bodies like our Saviour's, raised beyond the possibility of sin and fall, to love and serve you forever. Stir us, Father, we pray, to train ourselves for godliness. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.